You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CT Group. I'm here, as always, with James Whelan, macro strategist and investment manager at VFS. How are you, James? Fantastic, Paul. Uh, Great to be here again. Huge guest for us. Uh, Really looking forward to this one, especially today. Yes, indeed. Uh, We are here in Sydney recording this on the 28th of October 2020. Now, not joining us on the line from Amsterdam this week is Ken Vexler, who is on assignment. Well, actually, it's the middle of the night there. Um, That's a great assignment. (laughs) He's on assignment uh, in bed. Getting actual human bodily sleep is uh, is assignment. We'll uh, we'll accept that today. It's okay. That's right. Uh, And we'll have Ken back next week, I'm sure. Um, Now, look, after the shenanigans, um, even a bit of giddiness last week uh, with our anonymous special, featuring uh, some of the famous anonymous accounts on uh, Twitter that are out there, including Ramp Capital. Uh, And thank you uh, to all of our uh, esteemed listeners for all the feedback on that too. It was a lot of fun. Uh, We're going to button up again and talk about the macro picture. Our guest is an emerging star in in Australian economic commentary. Uh, She covers the full range of macroeconomics, markets and policy. So we're delighted to have her on the show. It's Deanna Mussina, a senior economist at AMP Capital. Deanna, welcome to The Bip Show. Thank you so much, and thank you for the introduction as well. I feel like you talked me up. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, uh, I, I, I always set the bar low. Uh, <laughs> I just get look on the show today. We're going to talk about the inflation data. We're recording on Wednesday, so uh, inflation data CPI uh, was out this week. We're also going to talk about the ongoing surge in COVID nineteen cases at the global level. Uh, and uh, the big second or third wave, however you're counting, uh, that we're seeing in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, We might look quickly at the US election, uh, the end of the stimulus talks and the wobble we're seeing in equity markets, but let's start with inflation in Australia. The June headline, uh, Deanna, um, maybe you can talk us uh, through that. You've got a great piece out today, which we'll talk about, but um, let's talk about what the numbers say today. Sure. So nothing really too unexpected uh, in the inflation data for the September quarter. What we've been seeing in developed markets, and Australia has been no different to this, is a very big fall in prices really over the June quarter. And then then you've had this big rebound in prices in the September quarter. There are a lot of one-off temporary factors in Australia that caused that deflation in the June quarter. We had some free childcare payments thanks to the government and some um, out-of-school care as well, um, free payments for those. Of course, a big drop in petrol prices. So a lot of these factors have now been reversed. So inflation was up what looked like a very high amount by 1.6% in the September quarter. But the important thing to keep in mind is that annual growth in inflation or in price growth is still very low at 0.7%. And the better reading of inflation is underlying inflation, which takes out some of these quarterly volatilities. And that showed that price growth only rose by about 0.4% over the September quarter or 1.2% over the year. So with a central bank that's targeting 2 to 3% inflation over the course of the business cycle, clearly inflation of just over 1% is still quite low. 
Yeah, there's a long way to go back to that uh, target band. Um, so how does this uh, feed into the overall picture for the RBA? Uh, we have um, the monthly meeting next week and uh, there's um, the market's kind of uh, waiting to see what happens. Uh, I suppose the interesting thing with, uh, with what COVID's done for central banks is it's kind of made the data irrelevant. I mean, we know that the whole suite of economic releases are going to look shocking and they'll continue to do so while we get these pockets of lockdowns or restrictions in mobility. So the inflation data is always one of the key factors behind the RBA's policy decisions, which is why they always tend to move interest rates after they get the inflation data. So normally the November meeting on Melbourne Cup Day would be quite an exciting one, not just because you're watching the horse race, but because you're waiting for the RBA to move. But this time around, uh, we know that inflation is going to remain quite low for the medium term because you've had this huge hit to economic activity that's going to take a while to get back to normal. On our assumptions, GDP growth in Australia won't get back to its pre-COVID levels probably until the second half of next year, and it will still be below that potential pre-virus path that it was on. So if we had spare capacity before in the economy, now you're going to get even more of that, which generally tends to be negative for inflation. But of course, there are still pockets of high price growth, and that's uh, been driven by the by the pandemic. I think that a big part of the reason, and some people have said that McConnell, etc., over in the states, have uh, maybe thrown the US people under the bus a bit by not pushing through stimulus the way that they should have, or said that they were sort of going to, because the personal savings rate was actually so high. And, and so people could actually afford to be postponed a little bit with regards to uh, being stimulated, if, you, if, if, if you'll ex, uh, excuse me on this one. But uh, locally, so, like we've, we've had a look at the, the, the levels of uh, the household savings ratio and, and there's the obvious things that have been th- thrown around here locally. So this is from the ABS. It's, it's back up through that 20% household savings ratio mark. Do you, did you want to go into that a little bit about uh, about what what that sort of spells out for the rest of the year now with us reopening? Melbourne, Melbourne is solved. Get involved. Victoria is good. Borders look like they're about to be maybe potentially reopened. I might actually be able to go and see my cars, uh, my cows, <laughs> not my cars. Uh, and uh, look, what does it what does it mean for the last quarter going through go, going through into the end, especially with the fact that everyone's got so much money allegedly, everyone's got so much money in their bank account. Well, that's what's happened from all this fiscal stimulus that's been uh, carried about by the government. Yes, the savings rate has more than tripled. It's gone from about 6% before COVID to about 18% now or close to that 20% mark you were talking about. And that's because of all the the, the policies that have been uh, enacted over the past seven months or so. So you've had um, JobKeeper and JobSeeker keeping people's incomes you know, afloat really, and that's partly compensated for the loss of uh, wages. You've had one-off, uh, or actually there were two welfare payments to pensioners and low-income households. You've had the access to early superannuation in Australia, potentially up to twenty thousand dollars, which is a big increase. You've had free childcare, 
and you've also had people being able to uh, to to stop their mortgage payments. So all of these factors have worked to increase household incomes. At the same time, we haven't been able to go out and spend as we normally would have because we couldn't when we were in the peak of lockdown in March and April uh, and May, really. And in Victoria, you couldn't have spent really um, as much as you would have in the past three months. People are working from home, so you're redirecting your spending. You might be doing some lower levels of spending on transport. Of course, not not everything uh, has had lower levels lower levels of spending, some of the expenditure that consumers might have done on overseas travel has clearly been uh, has clearly been pushed to the retail sector. We've seen huge increases in retail spending for things like household goods, electrical appliances, uh, furniture, because people are probably working from home seeing that their couch looks terrible in it and they want to give it an upgrade or uh, they've been preparing to work from homes. They've had to buy all these appliances. So, places like JB Hi-Fi and Bunnings have actually been saying that they've been doing quite well despite the fact that we're, we've been in a recession, which is normally not a great time for retail sales. So, it is a little bit of a different recession. Um, also, because the government has stimulated the economy so much through all these different fiscal payments. Now, while these fiscal payments have been um, good in trying to support the economy. Uh, as we've seen in the US, it's unlikely that they're going to keep on keeping up at the same pace that they have been. So, we do have this buffer for the near term where the savings rate is quite high. Consumers can draw down on that savings rate at, at a time when income growth is still looks challenging in Australia and in developed markets, I think, as well. The unemployment rate is obviously much higher than where it was before COVID occurred, you're unlikely to get very large wage increases in this current pandemic. There's the possibility that there will still be some localised lockdowns. Yes, good news out of Victoria this week, uh, but what's to say that we don't go into another localised lockdown? I think that none of us can predict that. And what's happening in Europe and the US in these additional waves that they're having really shows that you can't completely eliminate the virus. So, yeah, I mean, so, so you know, while income, while there's all this slack in the labour market, you know, wages are unlikely, wage growth is unlikely to go anywhere. But as you were saying earlier in regards to prices, they're not looking like going um, anywhere either. And in fact, they may be even weaker. So you might get wage growth at 1% or a little bit under, but uh, you'll still have um, core inflation at um very, very low levels. Uh, and at the moment, we're looking at, you know, half a percentage point, really. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, our estimates of wages growth will be quite low for the next 12 uh, months or even the two, next two years. We're looking at wages growth around 1% per annum, um, which is probably in line with where your inflation rate is going to be. So, in real terms, you might not be getting much of a wage rise. I mean, these are all predictions, obviously. they um, It may be better than that. Before the pandemic, we were thinking about wages growth around 2%, but obviously, a lot of industries have um, had to scale back, and uh, we can see that in the employment data. And the employment market normally tends to take longer uh, it tends to be a bit more of a lagging indicator for the economy. So, I think it will take longer for the unemployment rate to get back to its pre-COVID levels, even though the rebound in, in economic growth should be pretty good in the second half of this year. Now, I, uh, I, we've had a few minutes of good. Thank you, Deanna. Uh, it's, 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 it's been good, solid. Now, let's sort of step outside the box a bit and let's actually talk about what we think should or should not be happening. 
So I'll, I'll tee it off. We all remember when it, when it all when it all when it all kicked off and it all happened that there was a, a, a wonderful comedian and also a political commentator and an economics commentator um, over in the states who talked about the fact that when the pandemic hit, that every single American he was it was, it was this uh, New York guy, big Staten Island sort of energy sort of going on, talking about that every single American we were expected to save and we we're expected to be saving for as long as is needed with the pandemic. We we're expected to, to to have everything that we need. To, to deal with this, but companies that it turns out that they were going fully profitable and were up 30% a year and, and up 60% a year, airlines, every single company, suddenly they've got no money and they're cap in hand to the company. Now we've got a huge savings rate. We're expected to save and we're expected to save up for an indefinite future and, and now we are expected to, 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 to be dependent on our savings, on our savings to be able to carry us through this last little patch potentially. Where do you see the next few months going for us on that? Well, um, I was saying some, to somebody today, I think one of the really interesting things about the stimulus measures is that they're quite flexible, right? So the way they've been designed. So um, uh, at the moment, the most important thing is job creation, right? So uh, saving jobs, keeping people in jobs, uh, and making sure that the unemployment rate doesn't tick higher because that's where the problem really starts. So basically defending the, 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 the line, holding the line on unemployment. And uh, I, I really think the combination of um, fiscal flexibility that's designed into policy settings that we have at the moment so that you've got JobKeeper, for example, you can kind of restart that for certain industries, uh, et cetera, if you need to. Um, or if a particular sector has a downturn, it can just go back to the ATO and say, look, we, we didn't need it uh, because things were... Um, uh, going okay, but now our revenue has been cut down again because of this localized lockdown or whatever. Um, and so I think that flexibility is going to be super important. And I think actually it's um, it, and the the other thing the other thing is um, that that applies here is that's in the on the fiscal side is that there's a lot of capital investment. So there's a few billion dollars in you know manufacturing. Um, there's also R&D tax incentives, which incentivize hiring for uh, highly skilled workers uh, and the support teams that they need. Mm. So when you put that stuff together, there's a lot of incentives to start new things, right? So start projects. And once you've got that, I think then you get sort of fairly, you can get fairly rapid jobs growth for, and, you know, people coming in on contracts for, for quite a long time. So uh, if those people already have some savings, uh, you know, if those households who, you know, we're hopefully talking about several hundred thousand people here who are going to get hired mm -hmm. um, to put a dent in the unemployment rate. So if they have some savings, then they'll have a bit of comfort. You know, there's income coming and they can spend a little bit extra coming to Christmas. They can uh, have a good holiday um, over January or whatever it is, you know, internally in Australia. Um, and then, you know, sort of normalise their spending uh, patterns uh, in the early part of next year. Absolutely. Now, uh, Deanna, sort of coming into the last quarter of the year and, and Christmas is right uh, on the horizon and, and I don't think there's ever been a more important Christmas in in my memory. Uh, now, how far can you step outside of, of, of your realms of what you can do and, and, and talk about where you where – where you see, where you think that things should be sort of uh, compared to where you see them actually going? Uh, well, I, I think the recovery for Australia has been slow in the September quarter because we've had this drag from the Victorian economy. 
but that should probably pick up some pace in December. I think Australia's managed the COVID-19 pandemic quite well, both from the policy response, which we can debate if you stand with Dan or not, uh, and the, res- the, quite, the, the quite stringent response that the government has had to managing the outbreak. But we've had very low death rates here compared to the rest of the world, and we've obviously had very low case growth. And hopefully we can continue to open up the economy and not have these localised pockets of lockdown. So I think that the December quarter and the Christmas period will still show quite a strong rebound in activity. And I think consumers will continue to uh, spend some of the money that they may have spent on, on overseas holidays or, or, or tourism on domestic retail purchases and domestic holiday travel as well. So there is some upside for the Australian economy in the next six to 12 months. The government's policy response, I think, has been quite large in terms of if we compare Australia to the rest of the world, we've had about 10% of fiscal stimulus worth of GDP. In other developed economies, it's in terms of direct fiscal expenditure, it's been closer to 6 or 7% on, on average. So our government has done quite a lot. I think that they probably need to make another announcement on job on job seeker, which is the coronavirus unemployment benefit supplement that they uh, increased. It's due to expire in December, and I think that there is some need for them to extend that uh, because the unemployment rate is still quite elevated. We expect it to peak probably at about eight or eight and a half percent by the end of this year, so we don't think it's reached a peak yet. So going from where it is now, about six point nine to. Uh, to eight to eight and a half, you think? We think that it, it will peak somewhere between eight and eight and eight and a half percent by the end of the year, because you still have a large chunk of people who have left the labour market because they've been discouraged job seekers, especially in Victoria, um, because you know you can't actually look for a job in some industries because they're completely closed. When those people go back into the labour market, they need to find a job, and the key thing is, will there be enough jobs available for everyone? And we think no, that jobs growth will be quite. Uh, slow and soft and you have a rising participation rate and in that environment your unemployment rate is likely to uh, increase. So I think that there's a need for the government to increase the coronavirus job seeker supplement Um, but besides that I think the budget was pretty decent in terms of trying to stimulate business investment like you were talking about before Uh, and the overall package I think was quite reasonable for the times that we're in. Um, so one of the things was, and you, you touched on this a, a little bit earlier in terms of prices. Um, you have a really great piece at uh, today, in fact, uh, on um, on pandemic related inflation, right? Um, which I thought was a really po- uh, thought provoking read, um, and uh, it feeds into this whole thing of like sometimes you know what the um, economists measure. Uh, people say you know w- when it comes to inflation. People hear inflation is low, but they say, "Well, all my bills are still really high," and mm-hmm. you know, so they look around and you know. Um, but it was a really insightful uh, uh, piece, and maybe you can just uh, uh, run down uh, through it because it talks about how the things that you want in a pandemic, um, you know, their prices tend to go up, um, and the price of some other things comes down. But uh, yeah, maybe you can run run us through it. Sure, sure. Thanks. Uh, well, the piece was inspired actually by my dad, who um, always tells me that he doesn't believe the inflation data. And I, you actually hear that a lot from consumers. And central banks have been trying to grapple with 
why consumers always have much higher inflation expectations than what actually comes out in reality. And if you track consumer inflation expectations, they're always much higher compared to business inflation expectations or the government or the actual data. And part of the reason is because I think we tend to remember the prices of things that we don't want to purchase or, you know, those adult, those adulting type of things that you don't want to pay for, like your bills, education, uh, things that are also more related to uh, government price changes and government monopolies and lack of competition in some industries probably can put upward pressure on those types of prices of things like transport. But on items that you want to spend money on, clothing, footwear, electronics, um, you might not tend to realise actually the amount And the problem with measuring inflation as well for statisticians is that they need to account for quality adjustments. So if you think about your iPhone that you purchased 10 years ago, it would have looked quite different uh, to what you have now, much lower capabilities. uh, And the way, uh, but the price of that iPhone 10 years ago might not actually be that much uh, lower than what it would be now. And the way that the statisticians account for that is by including that as a quality improvement. And I think that that's really hard for consumers to see. You don't realise that a lot of the tools that you're using now actually probably have a much better quality and they, they have to account for that by including it as a price increase. So in terms of what's happened with COVID-19 and how it's changed our spending behaviour, in pandemics or in times of economic crises, normally demand for goods tends to increase and demand for services tends to fall. And in COVID-19, that's what exactly what's happened. We haven't been able to do the normal types of services that we would normally do, like going out to eat, going on transport, going on holidays, um, because we haven't been able to. The mobility has been restricted. And prices for those items have actually tended to go down uh, because demand has been low. But for for items that we have had an increase in demand for, things like cleaning products, food prices, toilet paper, if you remember the toilet paper shortage that we had in Australia, household equipment, all the demand for these types of items has gone up. And the statisticians don't account for these changes in consumer baskets because when they update the inflation data, they use consumer spending baskets that were done about 18 months ago. That's just how they update the inflation data here in Australia. So the consumer baskets aren't an accurate reflection of what you're actually purchasing during a lockdown or the pandemic at the moment. So I think that actual inflation that you feel is much higher than what the headline numbers tell you. And it's probably much closer to what some of the underlying or core inflation, which I think is it's really important that people um, continue to look at the underlying inflation inflation data. And it's also important that government services are coordinated more towards underlying inflation prints because a lot of the time um, payments for welfare uh, or things like excise taxes, a lot of the time they can be indexed to uh, headline inflation prints. Now, hopefully some of these volatilities that we've had in you know, the one-off changes that we've had in policy uh, will probably start to ease up. But I still think that it's important to keep in mind that our spending baskets look quite different during a pandemic. And there's definitely a case that maybe this needs to be more of an issue that statisticians look at. Indeed. Um, and do you think there's a case for... Um, you know, for perhaps some other kind of measure, which is, um, which can be captured by surveys, which kind of more closely aligns with, you know, kind of got like a cost of living measure of inflation. It's kept, you know, some other measure that shows that 
um, the uh, the policy making side of government is kind of connected and tuned into uh, how uh, the the kind of things that people need at various times of the year, or some because this has been a, a debate in economics now going back since the GFC is like you know there's these weird things happening with inflation and Janet Yellen even said that um, uh, you know um, when she uh, soon after she left. Um, as chair of the Fed, she said, you know, it's very clear that economists don't, are missing something that's happening with inflation. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Christine Lagarde, I'm doing this from memory, about uh, three weeks ago, she gave a really interesting speech where she um, acknowledged that there were some issues in how uh, it with, with inflation targeting and how uh, uh, policymakers are measuring um, price changes. Um, so do you think there's a case for some kind of different approach to um, to, to, to CPI as we currently know it? Well, one of the biggest issues is that CPI, <clears throat> sorry, sorry, excuse me, doesn't include uh, actual house prices. It includes the cost of housing related to, you know, living in a dwelling, things like utility prices, um, the cost of new, do- uh, the construction costs of new dwellings or rents, but it doesn't include actually purchasing a house. And that's what is one of the issues that the ECB has been talking about that Christine Lagarde has been mentioning is that that's also why you may feel like inflation is actually much higher than what it is because consumers, obviously, one of the biggest transactions that you'll ever make in your life is purchasing a a home. And in most developed countries, uh, home purchases are increasingly looking quite unaffordable despite the fact that interest rates have been cut so much. And this is another issue that needs to be taken into account. So when you're thinking about cost of living pressures, you need to think about the housing market as well and how home prices are impacting spending uh, besides just looking at the inflation data, I think. Yeah, indeed. Um, So one of the other things, um, that's certainly going to be a a policy uh, space to watch, I think, in, in the coming years. And um, uh, it's certainly very interesting, but your paper's great. Um, I recommend everybody go and have a look at it. Uh, is to, you, you can Google it. It's under Deanna's name at uh, AMP Capital. Now, um, there's talk this week, uh, Deanna, about the RBA saying um, uh, this week that the recession is over. It's done. There's no recession. Yeah. <laughs> what recession? Uh, so, um, uh, you know, what do you make of it, basically? Yeah. Well, we kind of already knew that. I didn't really think there was anything too <laughs> new to what they said. I mean, the recession lasted six months uh, and on our forecast, yes, we came out of it in the September quarter. So, I find a lot of these institutions like the IMF, RBA, World Bank, they can kind of be a little bit lagging um, by the time they update their growth forecast. The financial markets have already moved on that. I mean, that's why share markets have recovered so much, maybe not so much in Australia and in Europe, but in the US, share markets have gone back to their pre-COVID levels because of this assumption that you are going to get out of the recession probably in the second half of this year. So, I, I don't really take too much new information from the RBA. Maybe they were more confident in be, in being able to say that because Victoria is now coming out of a lockdown and they don't want to say, you know, that we're out of a recession even when one um, one of the biggest states in the country is going through such a tough period. Um, but I didn't really grab anything too new from those comments. Um, uh, Deanna, now I'm, I'm going back to an article that you wrote in 2017, if I may, on, on Livewire about uh, technology taking our – Taking our jobs, uh, which is sort of it was it was it was a wonderful article on, on that and classic live wire 
good innovative article that it was. Now, you've, we just sort of mentioned the recovery and we're sort of out of the recession. What, what do you think gets left behind in this one? And this is something that Paul and I have talked about for a while and, and, and I've talked bits and pieces on TV and wherever. When it all started, was like maybe there's some things that we don't need to carry on into the recovery. Now, I'm, I'm only asking you because, you because you wrote that three years ago. And if you want to, if you if 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 you want to go into it, then go into it. Then uh, th- th- then that's great. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, that article was actually more about you shouldn't be so worried about technology taking over your job. Good. Um, because there was a lot of, I mean, there's been a lot of concern over the last few years that globalization, um, robo jobs are going to be taking over, you know, physical human type of interactions and employment and I think it's a little bit overdone every industry will be impacted by technology but at the same time we can use it towards being able to work with robotics and machines and try and do something that's better I mean bank branches are still open despite the fact that we've been using ATMs and other types of robo you know, online calls through uh, robots for a long time in financial services, yet bank branches continue to open up in many different locations and they've kind of become more of like a hub where you can go and have a coffee with um, your your personal banker or your mortgage broker or whatever it is. So the nature of the job will change to become more of a personal type of service rather than, you know, just becoming this something like a number crunching thing that a robot can do. So the nature of jobs will change and some jobs will definitely be displaced, particularly ones that are routine manual types of jobs. They will be displaced by machinery, but I don't think it's something that we should uh, really fear around uh, people being unemployed. Um, The government has obviously a need to try and push people into or, or try and create employment conditions and training uh, that allows people who are going to be displaced by these types of changes uh, to finding another type of role or try and train them up to do something else. There's definitely a role here for the government as well, but I don't think that we should be fearing technology um, to that same extent. What will this pandemic change and how how will it look next year? I mean, the, one of the biggest things that I worry about is what um, real assets will do after the pandemic. I think there's still a big question mark here. I don't think that there's going to be a complete death of the office, but you can definitely tell that in uh, a lot of developed countries, people want to work from home more. So do offices scale down? Uh, Do shopping centres scale down because people will continually purchase more goods online? I think that there's definitely a case for that to be made. So I do worry about the future of real assets, also because I've had such a good ride over the past few decades, uh, going off the back of very low bond yields, uh, and that's probably the biggest thing that I worry about. Yeah, I, and and I'm going to segue it here, and that was very well said. Thank you, Diana. The uh, that uh, so if we're going to sort of bring in robotics, so, so I think what you were saying three years ago was was ac- accurate and and fantastic. And now I sort of think that potentially that companies, certainly large companies, have taken this opportunity and will be taking this opportunity to maybe automate and replace through through robotics a lot of the a lot of the people that they just don't feel they need to be replacing right now it's it's it, it's sort of it's this little suspecty feeling that i've got on this one so i mean t- take for example eurozone employment was what is it three percent three point one percent down in the second quarter uh compared quarter on quarter last year 
with professional jobs down 4.2%, but employment in computer programming rose. So it's actually that, that, that digital, so it's sort of that, that whilst actual those hands-on jobs are going down, the people who need to fix and repair and program and, and do those things are, are actually increasing. That's, it's, so it, it's potentially all balancing out. It's all balancing out to the better. because uh, I'm ready to take a, not exactly a, a, an opposing view to that, but a balancing view to it because I think there's also in um, the scheme of this, it's kind of put a bit of uh, focus on um, what capability do you have that's um, within your control in a um, globalised environment where there's a lot of contingencies between uh, workforces and teams that are spread out around the world, right? So, uh, which is really, really helpful um, for cost and efficiency and it's been a big part of, you know, our lives uh, has been this whole thing of like distributing different kinds of work. The ability to distribute different kinds of work um, around the world was Thomas Friedman wrote in the late 90s, I think that book called um, The World is Flat, um, where he was talking about like, you know, um, there's no such thing anymore as this thing, you know, accounting services are all going to be done in places like India, et cetera, for large companies. And to a certain extent that has happened. Um, but at the same time, uh, what that also does is it frees up other capacity within the domestic economy from where you've offshored it, right? So that people can go and do other things that might be more interesting, more productive, uh, and particularly when you've got uh, capital and good ma- uh, a good management class and an entrepreneurial class that can grow new industry. Uh, and then um, to go back to what I started talking about, there's this issue of um, what do you want to have on your own shores, uh, that you can that you can be certain of, it's not going to be a problem if there are uh, similar disruptions like this, and there will be yeah. um, for various reasons, like banking uh, data and things like that. Mm. That was an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, uh, you know, and PPE, a really good mm. uh, example. This whole question of like, where do we get the PPE from? Well, the borders are shut. So, um, you know, borders are shut, planes aren't flying in. Uh, how do we how do we do this? Um, and there was a scramble to kind of spin up uh, manufacturing lines everywhere and retool them to uh, build um, to start putting out masks and, and PPE, but also other things that we needed to um, treat the sick people. Uh, so, um, there's there's there are there are two parts to it. I think it's a really interesting. It's a really, really interesting question. Do, do, um, what do you think about that, uh, Diana? Uh, yeah, I think that there will definitely be some uh, businesses in Australia that will benefit from trying to bring some onshore, some manufacturing. But at the same time, Australia has been, as a, man, manufacturing as a share of GDP in our economy has been declining uh, for decades now and it's had nothing to do with um, you know, just a high Aussie dollar. It's been a multitude of things just from the fact that our wage base here is so high and we don't have a competitive advantage in it. So, yes, there might be some benefits to some specific businesses, but I really doubt that it will change the overall notion that Australia is not a manufacturing intensive nation. We have other capabilities, uh, like we have great financial services exports, great education exports, and you can see that in the demand for uh, those types of services, obviously commodities in terms of goods and agriculture, but we're not a manufacturing intensive nation. And I don't think it can, 
I don't think that the pandemic will reverse those trends. Yeah, um, unless we can find like highly specialized manufacturing that can't be replicated. Yeah, um, yeah, true. Elsewhere, you know, stuff like that's why space technology, all that investment in that area yeah. is kind of interesting. Um, uh, so, one question I wanted to uh, ask you, um, Diana. Uh, you know, tough year for everybody, but a particularly weird year for economists. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. With, with the the data being so weird this year, right? So, like, what's been the impact on your work? Because you know, you, there used to be this saying. Uh, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, the you know, talking about the Fed looking through the data and the RBA looking through the noise in the data. Um, certainly, there's been a lot of that this year. Equity markets being uh, equity investors doing a lot of that, looking through the um, you know. Uh, g- g- complete collapse in earnings, etc. Um, so maybe you can um, share with us, how, you know, how you, you know, things that you might have had to adjust this year in terms of your normal approach um, to analysis and forecasting. Yeah, it's been it's been a great learning uh, curve, actually, especially in March and April when there was a lot of demand for our forecasts. And I think one of the key things that I, I continually say to people when they ask for forecasts now, two or three years out, is I, we just don't know because we're completely reliant on how the virus case count will go, and I don't want to sit here and pretend to be, you know, an expert on how that's on how that's tracking because no one can predict if there's going to be pockets of outbreaks and how uh, and how people will react and respond to that. Whether you know people will follow rules or whether they won't, or whether you'll have an issue like the hotel quarantine issue in Victoria. So the outlook is completely dependent on how fast a vaccine potentially comes through or if somehow the virus just disappears over a number of years if we don't get a vaccine. I mean, that's ultimately what happened with the Spanish flu in 1918. There was no vaccine for that. But over a few-year time frame, it just slowly started to disappear and kind of became just part of the usual seasonal type of illness, but never to the same deathly extent that it was at its peak. So the economic outlook is completely dependent on that. The best use of economic data that we have at the moment, I think, is all this high-frequency information that's being published. A lot of different providers, and I'm very grateful to them, are publishing high-frequency indicators, so places like Apple and Google tracking mobility across different parts of the world and across the majority of um, countries. Uh, We've got things like retail foot traffic, Uh, we've got things like hotel bookings, credit card data that's been published by the banks, weekly job advertisements, um, traffic usage, consumption of different energy, all these factors we had never looked at before for our economic forecasts or assumptions. Uh, But the fact that they're so timely really helps us at the moment in terms of trying to look at how the short-term outlook is. And I think that looking at the short-term picture right now is the most important thing. And that's really all the government and central banks can do at the moment now as well, because no one can predict what the situation will look like in a year, because we just don't know when a vaccine will come through or if it will. Yeah, and um, have you found that the high-frequency data, these new sources, uh, have been helpful in starting to get a bead on, for example, uh, uh, inflation um, pressures uh, and uh, GDP um, data? So, you know, we just, um, uh, you know, we had the um, June um the June quarter uh, GDP. So was was that high-frequency data helpful in trying to uh, estimate that? 
Um, I think it's maybe not in terms of the magnitude of the falls in GDP that occurred, but it's a very good tracker of uh, the momentum or the change. So, for example, in Australia, we have been able to see that we've obviously had some weakness over the past few weeks in our activity tracker using all this high-frequency data, really since Victoria went into um, its strict lockdown because you've seen 25% of the economy is Victoria and you've had a big fall in demand and activity there and the other states have not really been able to compensate by higher growth there. So it's really good in terms of trying to figure out the um, the shift in activity or momentum, which I think is a good sign for equity markets as well in terms of when you're trying to predict equity markets and moving off the fact of concern about potential lockdowns starting again. And I think that these mobility um, indicators and activity indicators give us a good sense to that. Uh, so let's um, look at what's happening uh, around the world. Uh, France definitely looks very bad. Um, uh, we're seeing record highs in positive tests in the US. Uh, you know, we're um, seven days today away from the election. Uh, Ireland's back in lockdown. Uh, UK still in relative chaos. Um, so we're not out of this yet, are we? There's a long way to go. COVID-19 has definitely not gone away as much as everyone just wishes that it would. And everyone probably wishes that we'll start 2021 and it will be gone. But I just don't think that it's likely at all unless you go down the path that China went down uh, of testing everyone and complete um, localising different groups that have, that, have, that have had the virus. I just don't think that any other country is really capable of um, doing the same thing because um, that large scale of testing is just really not available and the pockets of uh, lockdowns are really not available to, to any other country either. So, unfortunately, I think it will just be a case of trying to manage these different outbreaks and with what's going on in in Europe, uh, it really puts more pressure on the governments and individual countries and for the central bank, the European central bank, to come out and do more uh, monetary support and for the governments to do more fiscal support as well. It's positive to see that their wage subsidy programs, which do support a decent chunk of the employment market there, have mainly been uh, all extended until sometime in 2021, which I think is really important. Uh, but there's obviously needs to be more direct support to businesses, maybe cash payments to households and that type of thing. And I think it's really going to be the case that some of those countries will have to go into some form of a lockdown because they just won't be able to manage um, the growth in hospitalizations if those hospitalization rates increase. And given where the cases are in places like France, um, I'm not sure if they've actually had big outbreaks in aged care homes, which normally tend to lead to the very high death rates, of course. Um, but they really need to try and um, ward off those vulnerable groups from uh, from contracting the virus because that's what leads to the very high death rates. But I think it's very likely that a lot of those countries will have to go into some form of a lockdown, which will be negative for equity markets there. Yeah, it's um, it's quite exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> Um, just thinking about getting, you know, stumbling to the end of this year. Um, I think, you know, there's the the the, um, the joy we've had in in Australia this week seeing Victoria finally um, get a couple of donuts uh, on the board, but uh, you know, and everything opening back up there t um, from today actually as we're recording. Um, but it is exhausting thinking about. Gosh, this uh, may have quite a quite a way to run, hey. It really is. And I think everyone's just holding out for a vaccine to come through and 
it's just really uncertain as to when that will come, what it will look like, and when the large amount of the population will actually be able to get it. Um, so that's something that we just have to wait and see what happens in 2021. But, I mean, there should be some positive news on the vaccine front. By the end of this year, there are about 10 different providers around the world that are in phase three of trials, which means that they're um, testing on a large scale of the population. It's generally the last phase before you get government approval. I'm confident that there will be a vaccine by the middle of next year. Uh, by the middle of next year, I just don't think it will be available for 50% of the population. I think it might be available for 20 or 30% of the population. Mm. But at least that's something. Um, the other driver of volatility is uh, US elections uh, coming up. Uh, look, we'll wrap up shortly, but uh, um, how is this factoring into to everything at the moment, do you think? It's just a really uh, topsy-turvy for the US election. At first, there was concern that a Biden victory or a, de- or a Democrat blue sweep would mean uh, higher taxes and that would probably be negative for equity markets. But now equity markets have been pricing in a chance of a, of a Democratic blue sweep to be positive because it would mean a higher fiscal spending package, which I think it would. Uh, But actually, over the past few days, we've seen a narrowing in the odds between Biden and Trump, and now they look extremely close. I'd say probably close to to 50-50%, even though in the betting markets, I think that they're still placing about 75% chance on a Biden victory, maybe a little bit less than, than that now. So I think it's an extremely narrow race. If I look at all the different factors, things like the number of people who have voted early, apparently there's been about close to 70 million people who have voted early, which is probably more than half of the normal turnout that you would get. Normally, that type of early voting would suggest better support for the Democrats because they tend to have a higher share of in-mail voting uh, rising COVID case, I think probably work negatively for Trump. And of course, the fact that the US was in a recession normally doesn't tend to be positive for the incumbent president. But at the same time, the share market has performed quite well, which should be um, positive for Trump. And those polls have definitely narrowed. So it's going to be extremely close. I think either way for equity markets, if you get a Trump victory, uh, I think equity markets would rally on that because it's kind of a known commodity. You sort of know what you get with him. He'll still do some level of fiscal spending. The concern of the more medium term is what the policy will be on China and whether that um, trade rhetoric um, and that trade war will ramp up, which I don't think you'd get as much with Biden. However, with Biden, you'd get higher taxes on households, especially on the high income groups, but that would be offset with much higher infrastructure spending and uh, spending on the environment and climate. So I think either way, it's probably positive for equity markets in the short term. Yeah, I, I, certainly this idea that, uh, you know, you can kind of see uh, financial markets reacting if there was to be a Trump victory, you know, for uh, immediately the immediate reaction going, um, oh, fantastic, Trump's back. And then very, very shortly afterwards, oh, goodness me, Trump's back. No, <laughs> Trump's back. For how long? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, actually, I, that, uh, that's um, stealing in line from somebody who was very funny about uh, Kevin Rudd taking back over from Julia Gillard, you know, that there would be this week of going, you know, oh, Rudd's back, fantastic. Uh, and then <laughs> about yeah. three minutes later, oh, goodness me, Rudd's Which back. Which is uh, the, the, the irony of the switch from, from four years ago when it was, oh, no, Trump's the president – and the market sold off for 20 minutes 
and then yeah. immediately switched around to being, oh, Trump's the president. This is great because everything's it's, – it's open the floodgates. Deanna, right, off the cuff, here we go. Based on stimulus, based on the election, based on the, uh, the pandemic, which I believe is still a thing, based on Europe and based on China, based on Australia reopening and our bubble that we've got, what are your best and your worst case scenarios for the, for the planet going into 21? Um, this is, you know, this is, uh, might be one of the last bips that we do for, for, for 20. So um, what, are, what are your best and your worst cases there? Best case, I think we get a vaccine um, in the first six months of the year that's available to more than 50% of the population across developed and emerging markets. And you see this big rebound in economic activity, global equity markets are back to, the, to their pre-COVID levels. Worst case scenario, we're stuck where we are at the moment where you're just kind of seeing pockets of, of localised lockdowns. Um, well, I was very uh, uh, enthusiastic and upbeat on the first part. And, uh, um, <laughs> just like every conversation just, we've had this year, yeah, man. So, that's right. But I, 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 reiterate, I reiterate that I think that I, st- I still believe that regardless of really of what's, of what's going on, vaccine or not, um, we're looking at potentially the, the, the biggest boom of our generation or any generation that has gone before us. And uh, and the reopening is going to be something that if it'll, I mean, imagine what just happened in Melbourne for the last twelve hours. Imagine that. Mm. Take mm. that times that by a, a million. Mm. That's mm. that's what we're looking forward to for for twenty twenty one. Yeah, with a high household savings rate too. So. Yep. Um, so our guest has been Diana Messina from a senior economist at uh, AMP Capital. Diana, great to have you on the show. Finally, I was glad we could organise that. Um, uh, your, your stuff has been great, and um, uh, delighted to finally um, uh, get you on and, and have a chat. So thanks for coming on the Bip Show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. All those subscriptions, reviews, and ratings uh, do make a difference to us. Um, you can find us on iTunes uh, and Spotify at The Bip Show. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show. We're all there on Twitter individually too at Colgo. It's at James Whelan 42 And Deanna, you're on Twitter too, I assume? I, I am on Twitter. I can't say that I'm a very active uh, tweeter. Well, you're about to be. I, I am on there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be, yeah. Everyone say good day to Deanna on uh, on the Twitter, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and let's see what let's see what comes back. Well, Thank you so much. It was really good to talk to you. Thank you. It was great. Uh, don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show. We love those five star ratings. The show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter. We will catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.